First Thessalonians chapter five. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse sixteen through eighteen, the apostle Paul wrote, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Sometimes we say that God has a sense of humor. And while that's not a direct quote from Scripture, it sure seems to hold true a lot of the time. God did use a donkey to talk some sense into the prophet Balaam. The Holy Spirit led Peter, who wrote some pretty complex truths himself to say that Paul's writings were hard to understand. In the Bible, there's a lot of irony. There's a lot of curious timing and some just flat-out funny stories. And some of that irony was evident in my life this past week. Most of you all know the ongoing challenges that my family is facing, especially my wife, Allison. She just began her third cycle of chemo, and we appreciate and covet your prayers. Obviously, we've been dealing with that for months now. And also, the rest of the summer, for me, is extremely busy. Church camp starts tomorrow. The following week, a group is leaving for Mexico to visit the Morenos. Then comes the church family retreat at Family Farm, followed by a revival I'm scheduled to preach at Big Creek where dad pastors, and then it'll be time for me to start teaching at the seminary again. So I took last week off. We didn't have big plans. We just really needed some rest. We needed a peaceful week in the worst way. But that did not happen. Allison injured her ankle on a hike, which resulted in a trip to the emergency room. The next day, I went to a different type of emergency room because our dog was sick. She had eaten a Nerf dart. I'm not done yet. A stuffed animal's eyeball and the head from a Lego person. And so she needed medicines and nearly constant monitoring for a few days. So on my vacation, I took care of an injured wife, a sick dog, and two kids. And we started calling it stresscation. But what makes those, the, the timing of the struggle so ironic was not necessarily that they happened on my week off. But more so that they happened the week before the sermon text is about always being joyful, prayerful, and thankful. And I really debated about using such a personal introduction because I don't want to come across as, you know, woe is me, you poor pitiful brother Matt. I'm not trying to get you to feel sorry for me. I'm not looking for sympathy. I know you're all busy too. I know you all have struggles and trials, and I'm not elevating anything that my family and I are facing above what you're facing. But I decided to use that and tell you all that to be real and to be genuine. I struggled last week with what I'm about to preach this morning. Yes, pastors aren't perfect. Pastors struggle. And I was a little frustrated, not just because vacation turned into stresscation, but because I knew what was coming up this morning in 1 Thessalonians, and I was a little annoyed by it. So maybe God has a sense of humor. Maybe there's some of that ironic timing. Or maybe God knew exactly what verses needed to be on my mind, whether I liked it or not. Our focus this morning is obvious. 
that children of God must always be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. So before we break down each verse, we've already read them, but before we break them down, I want to share some overarching truths that apply to each verse. That's better than me reiterating them three times, okay? All three of these activities, rejoicing, praying, and giving thanks, they are all given as commands. Think about that. These are not options. They are not suggestions. They're demands. We're ordered by the God who created us and who saved us to do these things. And since they are commanded, whether we like it or not, it boils down to a matter of obedience more than anything else. Our evolving emotions, our fickle feelings, they don't play a role here. Our circumstances, whether good or bad, do not change God's expectations for us. At the end of the day, it's an issue of whether or not you will obey God. And so since they're commands, they're similar to the command to love. In that sometimes we, we talk about love and we describe it as a warm, fuzzy feeling. But the simple fact that the Bible commands us to love proves that love is more than just a feeling. That doesn't mean that love is unemotional, but it proves that love is actually a choice. It's a choice to place someone else's needs ahead of your own and do what you can to help them, even if that hurts you. So since you're commanded to love, you can either obey that command or disobey it. And the same is true here with these three commands. You choose to rejoice or not. You decide to pray or remain silent. You resolve to give thanks or not. Your feelings and your circumstances, although real, they do not change what God desires from you. They cannot be offered as excuses. This is a matter of obeying God. Next, all three of these commands are also continuous. That's pretty clear with words like evermore and without ceasing and in everything, right? But even without those clarifications, Paul's commands still have an ongoing force. There's, there's a continual nature to these actions. And the point is that these activities should always characterize you. These should be things that you are habitually doing in your life. I have a habit every morning when I wake up, I make a pot of coffee. It's my routine. Probably many of you have the same routine. If you don't, I'll pray for you. <laughs> it's just what I do. It's, it's second nature. I wake up, I go to the kitchen, I start a pot of coffee. Rejoicing and praying and giving thanks should be similar to that. Not that those actions are, you know, mundane or boring, but they should be routine in a good way. They should be so much a constant part of who you are that they're not out of place. They're not surprising. It should never shock someone to see you joyful. It shouldn't be weird for someone to see you being joyful or being prayerful or being thankful. Really, the reverse should be true. Lacking joy should be the exception. Not praying should seem strange. 
Not giving thanks should be like waking up without coffee. Something's just wrong with that. These are things that we should habitually be doing in our lives. And so now that you know that all of these are continuous commands that should constantly characterize us, let's look a little bit more in depth at each one. Verse 16, rejoice evermore. I've said before that the Bible only has to say something once for it to be important. So when the Bible repeats itself, we better perk up. We better really pay attention. And this is one of those repetitive teachings. Multiple times in Scripture, we are commanded to rejoice. This time, Paul even adds the word evermore. Some translate it always or at all times. Well, we, we would have liked it, but Paul did not say rejoice during good times and be gloomy during bad times. We're commanded to rejoice always. And so it's important for us to understand what joy is. True biblical joy or rejoicing is different from happiness. Now, I have nothing against happiness. I like it. I'm a fan of it. But happiness is highly dependent upon circumstances, isn't it? When the Razorbacks win, I'm happy. When they lose, I'm sad. When vacation turns into stresscation, I don't like it very much. But true biblical godly joy is not based upon great physical circumstances. In fact, it's, it's a little ironic in the New Testament, the opposite is often found. There's a frequent connection in the New Testament between joy and suffering. That proves that joy is not dependent upon favorable circumstances. And there's several examples I can give you. In Acts chapter 5, do you remember the apostles were counted, uh, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to what? To suffer. When Paul and Silas were arrested in Philippi, do you remember what they were doing? They were singing hymns. That's sort of a joyful thing to do when you've been arrested and beaten for preaching Jesus. Jesus said when we're persecuted to rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. Probably the best demonstration or one of them for sure of the connection between joy and suffering is in James chapter 1. James commanded us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. Say, why would I do that, James? Why would I consider a trial in a joyful manner? Well, thankfully, James answered that question for us. The joy does not come from the trial itself. The joy comes from the knowledge that God can use that trial to produce godly results in your life. God can take that, quote, bad thing and mold you into a more complete servant. James continued, he said, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So, even during trials, you can have joy knowing that God can use those trials for your maturity. Obviously, that doesn't mean that there's no connection between joy and good times. 
But I think we get that. I think that's a little more obvious. It's a little easier to rejoice maybe when things are good. But we need to understand that joy is not dictated by circumstances. Joy is something so deep that it cannot be taken away from you by anything or anyone. Because true joy is based upon having a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. True joy flows from having God's Spirit poured into your heart when you trust Jesus. In Galatians 5, joy is an aspect of the Holy Spirit's fruit that He produces in your life. Throughout the New Testament, when God is at work, there is joy. Joy is based on spiritual things. Sometimes those are very joyful events. There's a lot of joy associated with the birth of Christ. Read Luke chapter 2. There's a lot of rejoicing going on. It's a great event. God was at work, wasn't he? But even when it may not be as obvious, during a trial, there can still be joy because God is still at work. So joy is always available to the child of God. But you do need to make the decision to rejoice. You need to resolve to obey. I mentioned that joy cannot be taken away from you, but that doesn't mean that we always follow the command and choose joy as we should. Sometimes we like to wallow. That's a good southern word, wallow. We like to be, you know, feel sorry for ourselves. One author said this. It's a pretty strong statement. He said, the Christian who remains in sadness and depression really breaks a commandment. In some direction or other, he mistrusts God, his power, his providence, or his forgiveness. That's strong, but it's true. No matter whatever happens in your life, there is joy knowing Jesus as your Savior. We read from Philippians 4 earlier in the service. Do you remember Paul told them to rejoice in the Lord always? How can we possibly remain melancholy and gloomy and pessimistic if we're looking forward to the unsearchable and eternal blessings that await us in Jesus Christ? Be rejoicing always. And along with that, there should be constant prayer. Verse 17 says, pray without ceasing. Just think with me for a moment about the incredible blessing of prayer. We talk about it all the time. We, we do it all the time. We, but think about it for a minute. Prayer allows you to communicate your thoughts, your desires, your hopes, your fears, etc. to the almighty creator of the universe. And he listens. That's an outstanding privilege. And listen, God doesn't need us to pray in order to learn things about us. But we're commanded to pray so that we rely more on Him. So don't ever think, well, God already knows what I'd pray anyway, so what's the point? The point of prayer is not to educate God, but to humble you, to express your trust in Him. 
to plead for his help, for his mercy, his grace, his love, his will. Prayer is very powerful and it needs to be a prominent thing in our lives. But how often do we view prayer as, as unimportant? Sort of takes a back seat to other things. I know I've shared this before. Some of you remember one of my favorite comic strips. It's one of those single frame comic strips and there's a pastor in his office kneeling down behind a desk and he's obviously praying and the person's at the door and says, oh good, you're not busy. Don't have that view of prayer that it's unimportant, it's unnecessary, that you know, it's not useful, that you're not interrupting anything if that's going on. Jesus didn't have that view of prayer, did he? Even Jesus prayed to the Father. Specifically think of Jesus' most trying time. The night he was betrayed, he knew that Judas was betraying him. He knew he was leading a mob to arrest him. He knew that would lead to beatings and a crucifixion. And Jesus did not run. He did not hide. He did not fight back. But he did pray. Jesus faced his most trying moment in prayer. And if prayer was that important to Jesus, then what does that say about the importance of prayer in my life and in your life? It's not a waste of time. It's not something we only do if we have spare time. It's something we do need to make time for. And it is good to have those, uh, have time that's, you know, allotted for uninterrupted prayer. But the idea here in this verse is not so much of, uh, of that, but it's more of having a constant mindset or an attitude of prayer. That's sort of the idea of without ceasing. This phrase without ceasing comes from a single Greek word that every time it was used in the New Testament was used in connection with prayer. And it does not mean that if you ever do anything besides praying that you're violating this command. It's not even possible to pray every second of every day, is it? Does that mean you can't sleep? I can't go to sleep or I'd stop praying. I'd love to tell my wife I love her, but I can't. I gotta keep praying. I'd love to sing hymns, Brother Richard, but I can't. I gotta keep praying. That's not what without ceasing means. In the ancient world, this word described a nagging cough. If you've ever been sick with a cough, you know it doesn't mean that you literally cough nonstop, but it's recurring, right? There's this nagging, ongoing, chronic cough. And that's the idea of the word. Prayer should be a chronic condition in your life. It should be a recurring, repeating, ongoing, continual action so yes, the uninterrupted, you know, allotted times to pray are great and important, but prayer doesn't always have to be that quote-unquote official. You can pray without kneeling down and folding your hands. We should have a mindset, a spirit of prayer that just recurs throughout the day. I think just those, those short prayers that we may offer in a given moment. You know, Lord, help me right now be the person I need to be. Lord, thank you for getting me here safely. Lord, give me wisdom right now when I, when I talk to this person. Just that's, that's this recurring, ongoing, chronic prayer. And one thing recurring prayer does is it continually draws our hearts and our minds back to God, back to spiritual things, regardless of what we're facing. So always be rejoicing and be praying chronically. 
And finally, verse 18, we're commanded to give thanks. We all know what it means to be thankful and to give thanks. But in order to grasp the importance of this, we also need to understand the magnitude of the wickedness of ingratitude. Because I don't know that we would put ingratitude in the worst list of sins. If I asked you to name five of the worst sins imaginable, I doubt that ingratitude would make your list until, that, until this morning. Maybe it would now. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, there is a list of some pretty despicable and shameful evils. And unthankful actually made the list. In Romans chapter 1, there's uh, a, a ungod, uh, being unthankful is a characteristic of ungodly men. In the first century Roman world, even secularly, being unthankful was one of the worst things imaginable. There was a Roman philosopher, a very famous man named Seneca, and he said this, Homicides, tyrants, traitors, there always will be. But worse than all these is the crime of ingratitude. A secular philosopher viewed ingratitude as a crime and worse than murder. And that was just generally speaking. So how much worse is it when children of God who have tasted the extremes of his mercy and grace and love in Jesus Christ refuse to be thankful people? Especially showing thanksgiving towards God. How many things do you have to be grateful for? We could list so many blessings, food, clothing, shelter, and we could keep going. But the greatest of God's blessings are spiritual anyway. When's the last time you just thanked God for his mercy? For his peace, for his forgiveness, for his love, for his care? When's the last time you thanked God for his word? Or for sending his son to die for you? Because notice the command in verse 18 again. When are, we, when are we to give thanks? In everything, give thanks. Or some translations you have may say, in all circumstances, give thanks. Now you've got to notice, Paul did not command us to give thanks for everything. Everything in the world's not good. And it's okay to say that. That may not be politically correct, but... This world is cursed by sin and influenced by evil, and there are some things that happen that produce sorrow, not thanksgiving. But we can give thanks to God even during those circumstances because temporal trials and tragedies do not change our eternity. Nothing can change the fact that if Jesus is your Savior, your future is settled and sealed and that's something and someone to give thanks for in all circumstances. And there is another aspect to it as well, sort of similar to the, the, the paradox of joy and suffering. Since God can use even, quote, bad times for our benefit, we could be thankful that too, for that too. Not necessarily thankful for the trial itself, but thankful that our God is bigger than our trials. Thankful that he's still at work during our trials. Thankful that he's so great he can take those times and still use for his purpose 
for our benefit. So in all things, give thanks. And Paul ends the verse by saying, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. There's debate at the end of the verse here as to whether uh, this statement goes specifically with giving thanks or whether it sort of colors all three of these rapid-fire commands here. Uh, on the one hand, the word this is singular. So there is grammatical you know, reason to think this is only linked to thanksgiving. But I think that might be splitting hairs a little bit since it's always God's will for us to keep all of his commands. And also, I lean towards this singular word of this is the will of God, sort of casting a shadow over all three of these commands because they are so interconnected. It's extremely difficult, if not impossible, to separate these three actions. This is not the only place in the New Testament where joy and prayer and thanksgiving are tightly linked. We read earlier from Philippians chapter 4, earlier in the service, Paul mentioned rejoicing and praying with thanksgiving all together in a very short span of time. I don't know if you can be joyful without being thankful. And how would you express your joy and your thanksgiving anyway if you don't pray? It's like a three-legged stool. If you take one leg off and it doesn't really matter which leg it is, you're going to topple. God's desire for your life is this, that you are always rejoicing, always praying, and always giving thanks. That's what God wants from you. That's God's desire. These commands seem even more remarkable when we remember about the Thessalonians. They were already being afflicted and persecuted for their faith in Christ. Way worse than stresscation. They are being afflicted. And Paul knew that. He knew they were outcasts in the city. He knew they were viewed as a threatening problem to their society. He knew that their lives were now extremely difficult. And yet knowing all that, he had the audacity to command them to rejoice, to pray, and to be thankful. I mean, was that just kind of a slap in the face to these people? Did he chuckle when he wrote this? Did he think, well, I mean, these are unrealistic things, but I, at least I'll tell them to try. No. Paul knew their lives were difficult, but he also knew that the eternal delight in knowing Jesus far surpasses any temporal pain in this world. So Christians can follow these commands. These persecuted believers in Thessalonica needed to be reminded of that in a great way. Joy, prayer, and thanksgiving need to epitomize your life. No matter what you face, they should be constant because your hope in Jesus is constant. And what a witness it would be to others in this world if we would obey these commands even when we do face trials. And if we do that individually, what kind of congregation will we have here? 
What will our worship be like? These three commands immediately follow commands about life in a church. He had just commanded them that the people need to respect their leaders. He commanded them how we should treat one another. And now all of a sudden he says, be joyful, prayerful, and thankful. Obeying the previous commands would help life in a church, but don't you think it would also help life among a church if everyone was joyful, prayerful, and thankful? What kind of congregation would you have if the reverse were true? If each one of us individually lacked joy, never prayed, and were constantly unthankful, what would our worship services be like when we came together? I'm not saying it's never wrong to have a somber service. There's a time to mourn. But generally speaking, when believers meet together, there should be joy and gladness and thanksgiving. I don't want to be a part of an assembly that's always gloomy and pessimistic and worship services are just blah. Not minimizing any trial of this life. But Jesus is more. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, these things probably seem very silly to you and even impossible to rejoice and to be thankful no matter what. That's very foreign to this world. It doesn't make sense. But it's not foreign if you know Jesus. Paul said, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. He's the secret, so to speak. If you need to be saved, repent and surrender your life to Jesus and be joyful, prayerful, and thankful always. Let's stand. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, help us to obey you, to rejoice, to pray, to be thankful, and use our lives as a witness to others when they ask about our joy and our hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.